Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. I definitely think justice can be bought. I think they're bought every day. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. The 2016 elections are over. But what have we learned from the results? Over the past 11 months, Life of the Law's team of reporters, editors, and scholars have been taking a hard look at how money and an increase in spending by special interest groups have played a role in the outcome of elections for judges on state Supreme Courts, and how those outcomes may impact our shared access to our state courts, courts that are supposed to represent fairness in the law and the highest ideals of justice. Now we're presenting all five stories in our series, A Fair Fight for a Fair Court, in two special hour-long feature episodes on Life of the Law with updates from the election. In this, the second hour, you'll hear three stories. Let's begin with reporter Chloe Persino's story from Wisconsin, Recuse Yourself. I wanted to find an expert who could help me grapple with this question. Why are judges who are accused of bias tasked with determining whether or not they're in fact biased? Enter Charlie J. Hi, my name is Charlie Jay. I'm uh, a professor of law at the Indiana University School of Law in Bloomington, Indiana. He's also the author of Courting Peril, the political transformation of the American judiciary. He thinks about judicial ethics for a living. In the 1600s, the presumption was that judges were incapable of bias. We presume a judge to be impartial, and anyone challenging that will... Uh, essentially cause the system to fall to pieces, cats will consort with dogs, whatever. Professor Jay says judges are human beings, and human beings have personal experiences that inevitably produce bias. Judges are, of course, taught how to be fair and impartial. But bias is a tricky thing to nail down. The problem with bias specifically, of course, is that it's hard to prove. It's hard to crawl inside a judge's head and say, you be biased. The question of bias in the judiciary is especially acute in Wisconsin, where, like many states, judges are elected to the state court. But the price tag on those elections has skyrocketed over the past decade. And so we really have a new issue arising as a consequence of all of this money flowing into judicial elections. At what point does the money become so significant uh, that we need to disqualify the judge for fear uh, that the judge won't be able to impartially hear the case. That, that is the question at the heart of our story. So, to start, I'm going to tell you about a family directly impacted by a judge's decision to remain on a case in Wisconsin. Meet Elijah Glover. My name is Elijah and I'm eight years old. My favorite color is red. My favorite color is red, and I like, I love my mama, my brother, and my sister. Where do you live? I live in Milwaukee. And do you like it? Yes. Elijah has asthma, and Tonisha Howard is his mom. I am Tonisha Howard. Um, I'm 31-year-old mother. Um, I have four children, two boys and two girls. My eldest is 11. Um, my youngest is three. 
In the winter, Elijah's asthma gets especially bad. He's up all night coughing, which means Tonisha Howard is up all night too. And he can't go to school, which means Howard can't go to work. Howard works in healthcare and also as a paraprofessional in the Milwaukee public school system. She doesn't have paid sick days, and she's been a single mom for much of her kids' lives. So when Elijah's sick, things get complicated quick. One time when Elijah was little, his asthma flared up. So Howard called into work and explained that she couldn't come in that day. She needed to take care of her son. You know, I called in. They, of course, had an attitude. Well, why do you need to be off? My child is sick. Well, how sick is your child? Uh, He has asthma. He's very sick. He can't go to school. He can't go to daycare. I have to stay at home with him. Well, how long will this last? I don't know. She was just basically like, don't come back to work until you have an excuse. Howard says she felt like she was being asked to choose between her family and her livelihood. It's been challenging, and it still is challenging, because you don't have that support from companies to say, okay, well, you matter as an employee, and if somebody's in your household is sick, I'm going to go the extra mile to make sure you still get paid and that your kid is okay and you can come back to work and be productive. I mean, like... I am very dependable. I usually pick up extra hours. I usually, you know, try and put a lot into wherever I am working. So I just feel like, in a sense, you owe me that. Like, don't. So it's it's a mess. I don't know. Some people really found it hard to believe that there were places of business that did not provide sick days. This is Barbara Zach Quindell. She's an attorney in private practice, and in 2008, she represented an advocacy group called 9 to 5. 9 to 5 organized a big grassroots effort to get a city ordinance on the ballot in Milwaukee. That ordinance, if passed, would provide paid sick leave for all of Milwaukee's workers, including Tonisha Howard. It would have guaranteed um, employees who work in the city of Milwaukee, that they would have a certain number of paid sick days and uh, that that would be like the minimum wage. That would be a basic labor standard that they would be entitled to use if they were sick or if their family member was sick. And the ordinance was very popular. The results were 70% of the people in Milwaukee voted that this paid sick days ordinance should become law. Not everyone wanted the ordinance to pass. Steve Boss is with the Metropolitan Milwaukee Association of Commerce, or MMAC. They represent a bunch of businesses in the city. Well, the day the referendum passed, we knew it was likely to pass, and so we had our legal strategy already preloaded and ready to go so that when the the numbers came in, barring some shocking result that uh, was counterintuitive to both our guts and the polling, uh, we would be able to immediately respond. MMAC responded by filing a lawsuit in state court challenging the paid sick leave ordinance. When you fight something like this, it's really hard to overcome perceptions that you're the troll under the bridge just trying to, you know, pound down, you know, sick workers and, you know, poor moms who can't get off to to take care of their sick kid. And really one of the biggest areas of concern for us is in the job market we have here in Metro Milwaukee right now, it's simple math. When you make something more expensive, 
people can buy less of it. And it's the same thing for an employer. If you make it more expensive to hire an employee, they're going to hire less of them. In short, MMAC argued the paid sick leave ordinance was bad for business. They didn't want Milwaukee to become a more expensive place to do business than any other city in Wisconsin. And as the local chamber of commerce, MMAC believed that employers should decide whether or not to offer paid sick leave to their employees, not voters. Here's Patrick Marley. He's a veteran reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and he says he remembers when the legal battle over the paid sick leave ordinance started to roil. The minute that we knew that there was a legal challenge to it, it's just one of those kinds of cases that there's going to be intense public interest in it. Uh, you can just see that that's the kind of case that's going to go all the way to the top. The top Marley's talking about is the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. MMAC was represented by the law firm Michael Best and Friedrich, a national law firm headquartered in Wisconsin. Michael Besson Friedrich is a law firm that does all kinds of work in Wisconsin, one of the larger firms here. It is a common firm to be used by Republican politicians. Uh, the legislature retained it when it wanted to do redistricting. They've done other work for candidates and campaigns. Just to be clear, for those of you who don't live in Wisconsin, today, in 2016, Milwaukee does not have paid sick leave. MMAC, they won the fight. But the thing is, a year after the paid sick leave case had been decided, information surfaced that made some people wonder if one of the justices on the Supreme Court should have stepped aside. According to 9 to 5, the advocacy group that got the paid sick leave ordinance passed, Justice Michael Gableman had received and failed to disclose a gift from the law firm Michael Beston Friedrich. You may remember that law firm. It was the firm that represented MMAC before the Supreme Court and Justice Michael Gableman on the paid sick leave case. It was a pretty big gift, like tens of thousands of dollars big. From 9 to 5's perspective, that gift from Michael Beston Friedrich meant that Justice Gableman could not rule impartially on the paid sick leave case, that he was biased towards the law firm that argued against paid sick leave and that he should have stepped off the case. To understand these accusations of bias, we need to go back to 2008 and look at a judicial election that happened right around the same time Milwaukee initially passed the paid sick leave ordinance. It was an election for a seat on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court that experts still talk about to this day. An election rife with money and attack ads. For a long time, judicial elections in Wisconsin were sleepy affairs. One expert I spoke with, a lawyer and academic named Rick Essenberg, compared judicial elections in Wisconsin before 2007 to, quote, playing checkers by mail, end quote. But then, in the mid-2000s, that all changed. Reporter Patrick Marley says both sides of the political aisle realize something huge. Judicial decisions can have as much impact, sometimes more impact, than state laws that are passed. Uh, special interest money from both sides started pouring in, and these became, in many ways, like partisan fights, even though they're nonpartisan positions. In 2007, 
candidates for Wisconsin Supreme Court and their third-party supporters spent an estimated $6 million on the race, four times more than the state's previous record of money spent in judicial elections set in 1999. The trend continued the next year in the 2008 judicial election. The judicial races are taking on more and more the color of legislative races and governor's races. The 2008 race for a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court was between challenger Judge Michael Gableman, a former prosecutor, and the incumbent, Justice Lewis Butler, a former defense attorney and the only African-American jurist on the state Supreme Court. Lewis Butler says that back in 2008, he felt at times like a bystander in his own campaign. There was a ton of money that was spent in Wisconsin, a ton of outside money. And uh, the concern that I had was that my message might get lost or that either candidate's message might get lost in, in, with, with the influx of outside money that was spent. And that, at least my perception, is that's the reality. That's what happened. According to researchers at the Brennan Center for Justice, in 2008, more money was spent on TV ads in Wisconsin's judicial election than was spent in any other state. Upwards of three and a half million dollars just on TV ads. Not so sleepy, right? One ad in particular made headlines. It was an anti-Butler ad, and it was sponsored by Michael Gableman's campaign. Unbelievable. Shadowy special interests supporting Lewis Butler are attacking Judge Michael Gableman. It's not true. Judge, District Attorney Michael Gableman has committed his life to locking up criminals to keep families safe, putting child molesters behind bars for over 100 years. Lewis Butler worked to put criminals on the street, like Reuben Lee Mitchell, who raped an 11-year-old girl with learning disabilities. Butler found a loophole. Mitchell went on to molest another child. Can Wisconsin families feel safe with Lewis Butler on the Supreme Court? In the ad, a photo of Justice Butler's face merges with a grainy image of his former client, who's also black. I, I think by merging my face uh, with that former client, I, I think it highlighted the fact that, that I was black. I mean, in this day and age, I don't think a lot of people are going around saying, hey, Butler's black. <laughs> you don't vote for Butler. I don't think anybody would do that. Um, but, but my face was actually merged. It was a dark and grainy ad. And like I say, if you, if you want to Google the ad, you can actually see it. Um, and then you can draw your own conclusions. In Lewis Butler's opinion, the ad altered the course of his campaign. We, we had a, a number of calls that came in towards the end of the election um, after the, the ads went up saying that we didn't know Butler was black. We can't, we can't support a black for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. If you're asking me if race had an, an impact in my election, uh, I'm sorry to say that, that at least for some people, the answer is yes. It hasn't happened in more than four decades, but today a Wisconsin Supreme Court justice is conceding an election. Justice Lewis Butler was defeated by Burnett County Judge Michael Gableman in a close Supreme Court race. The final Gableman unseated Butler with 51.1% of the vote, a margin of a little more than 20,000 votes. If I had been more of a politician, would I still be on the bench? Very possibly. <laughs> but, but I think when you are a judge, and this is maybe a statement about judicial elections in general, 
you know, should judges be politicians or should judges be judges? And uh, I took the approach that a judge should be a judge. I spoke to Justice Michael Gableman. He wanted our conversation to be off the record, and he declined to be interviewed for this story. A few months after Michael Gableman was elected to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, the attack ad you heard earlier was grabbing headlines yet again. The Wisconsin Judicial Commission charged Justice Gableman with violating the Code of Judicial Ethics when his campaign ran that controversial ad. Now, if the commission upheld the charges, they would then determine how Justice Michael Gableman would be penalized. Again, reporter Patrick Marley. They have a a very wide range from a reprimand, which is essentially a public scolding, to kicking you off the bench and anything in between. You know, they could have said, you can't sit on cases for three months. You know, you got to take a a day's loss of pay. There were a lot of things they could have done. Justice Gableman hired legal representation to defend himself against the ethics charges. The law firm was called Michael Best and Friedrich. One of his attorneys was James Bopp Jr. I helped... I defend Judge Gableman, who's on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, from what I thought was an unconstitutional charge. Bob says his defense of Justice Gableman on the ethics charge was rooted in a candidate's First Amendment right to free speech. It's not the government's job to decide whether ads run by by candidates for public office are true or false, Uh, that that's up to the people to decide whether the ads are true or false. And if you think they're false, well, then run an ad that, say, you know, that explains that. So anyway, uh, th- th- those were the grounds that we defended and, uh, and won the case. But Gableman didn't technically win. The Wisconsin State Supreme Court, a court of Gableman's peers, deadlocked on the ethics charge. Three of the justices found that there had been an ethics violation. And three justices found that the ad was First Amendment protected speech in the context of a political election. Reporter Patrick Marley explains how the case hung in this limbo. There weren't enough votes to dismiss the case. There weren't enough (laughs) votes to uphold the ethics complaint. It just sat there in this gray area. Then, a few months later, the fight over the paid sick leave ordinance had finally made its way up to the Wisconsin State Supreme Court. One of the judges on the court had recused herself, so there were only six justices who heard the case. And they split. 3-3. Which judge on the state's highest court cast the vote that deadlocked the case? Justice Michael Gableman. While the paid sick leave ordinance was winding its way through the state court system, Steve Boss of MMAC was working behind the scenes with state legislators to make sure that the paid sick leave ordinance never became law, regardless of what the courts decided. And it worked. Here's Boss. So we, uh, we convinced the legislature to pass uh, legislation creating a unified state standard for benefits like these. Um, they passed the legislature with a relatively strong vote. It wasn't unanimous, obviously, and was signed into law by Governor Scott Walker right here in our, uh, in our conference room. And with that, 
Milwaukee's paid sick leave ordinance was dead in the water. Okay, here it is. Here's where concerns about conflict of interest and judicial bias show up center stage. In 2010, when Wisconsin Supreme Court was hearing the paid sick leave case, reporter Patrick Marley reached out to Michael Beston Friedrich. This was the same law firm that had defended Justice Michael Gableman against the ethics charge and represented MMAC in the paid sick leave case before the Wisconsin State Supreme Court and Justice Michael Gableman. A lawyer with the firm told me that Michael Gableman had a standard agreement with the firm and had met his obligations. I took that to mean he had received an invoice and paid his bill and reported that as such in a news story. Soon after Marley's article ran in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the law firm, Michael Beston Friedrich, wrote a letter to the state Supreme Court correcting the public record. The letter said that the story had not fully accurately described the arrangement that Michael Best had with Michael Gableman, and that the arrangement was that Gableman would not have to pay for services unless he won his case and then was able to persuade a state board that his fees should be reimbursed by the state, in which case Michael Best could be paid. So essentially, Michael Gableman got free legal service, and the firm would get money only if he prevailed and if he then was able to persuade the state that it should pay his bill. Um, So the chances of Michael Best being paid were incredibly remote. Critics argued that this contingency fee arrangement between a justice on the Wisconsin Supreme Court and a law firm arguing before him amounted to a gift to a public official. That would violate Wisconsin's ethics law that a public official cannot accept anything of value for free. According to Marley, experts have estimated that those legal fees would have amounted to tens of thousands of dollars. So the public didn't know about that relationship at the time that he's ruling on cases in which Michael Best is representing clients before the Supreme Court. And the sick leave case is one of those cases. Nine to five didn't know about it. The newspaper didn't know about it. The general public didn't know what the terms of that deal were. So no one challenged his ability to remain on that case. Um, Now, he could have, uh, on his own, decided that that relationship would prevent him from sitting on the case. But he didn't feel that way. He stayed on the case. When the news got out, Barbara Quindell, one of 9to5's attorneys on the paid sick leave case, she was outraged. And... I think most people would understand that if you're going to be ruling on my case, I don't want you to have gotten any favor or gift from the representative or the party that I'm up against. I just think that tilts the scale of justice in a way that isn't fair. Quindell's firm filed a complaint with the State Government Accountability Board on behalf of 9to5. And community members, including Tonisha Howard, the mother we heard from earlier in the story, testified at town halls in protest. But Quindell says nothing ever came of it. If he had recused himself, uh, the vote would have been 3-2 in our favor. And we would have won the paid sick leave uh, battle 
in October of 2010. Steve Boss of MMAC says he sees no conflict of interest, that Gableman's fee arrangement with the law firm Michael Best and Friedrich did not get in the way of Justice Gableman's ability to rule impartially on the paid sick leave case. To play guilt by association games and try and use that as a way to stop judges from doing the job that the people of the state elected them to do, there's a little bit of a dangerous uh, road to go down, I think. And it's a very cynical attitude. And I think we got enough cynicism in politics already. When I asked about the fee arrangement between Justice Gableman and Michael Beston Friedrich, James Bopp, one of Gableman's attorneys, says he doesn't disclose, quote, attorney-client privilege communications, end quote. However, Bopp did say that he thinks the idea that Justice Gableman should have recused himself, should have stepped aside on the paid sick leave case, is, in his opinion, absurd. I think he can be objective. Uh, you know, j- just because you have w- one judge represent you in a, I mean, one lawyer represent you in a particular case does not mean you're biased for whatever client that lawyer ever is involved with. I mean, that's a ridiculous proposition. When I talked to Tonisha Howard, the mother from earlier in the story, she had this to say. I definitely think judges can be bought. I think they're bought every day. I feel like our justice system is set up to serve who they want to serve. Um... If you are a minority, they don't really care about you. If you're poor, they really don't care about you. Um, If they feel like you're uneducated, they don't care about you. So a lot of decisions is made in the state of Wisconsin is to benefit people who have money. So where does this leave us? Well, remember the question at the start of this story. When does money in judicial elections become significant enough that we need to worry about a judge's potential bias and their ability to rule impartially? After all, a judge has the final say on his or her own bias. Some people think that the appearance of bias alone is enough reason for a judge to recuse him or herself in order to protect the public's faith in a fair, unbiased judiciary. Uh, appearance needs to be tied to reality, not some fantasy. That's James Bopp again, the attorney who defended Justice Gableman against the ethics charges in 2010. Bopp has devoted his career to loosening restrictions on political speech and campaign finance. For example, he argued Citizens United before the United States Supreme Court. People do not abandon their reason and their thought processes just because they feel a debt of gratitude to somebody that supported their campaign. Uh, And if that would be true, uh, it's really a broad-based attack on democracy uh, completely. Professor Charlie Jay says he's concerned. He says it's not enough for a judge to voluntarily step aside because of bias, perceived or otherwise. And he says it's going to take more than recusal to protect the public's faith in the courts. That I don't think that recusal is an adequate remedy, uh, that uh, it, it is a, a remedy at the end rather than at the beginning. You know, Put another way in terms of a metaphor, it is kind of like putting an ambulance at the base of a cliff rather than a fence at the top. In other words, rather than doing what we can to keep the money from buying influence, we are saying once it buys influence, we will disqualify judges who have been influenced. Uh, That is 
a way to protect litigants, but it is not enough to preserve the integrity of the process, which requires us to roll up our sleeves and, and be more aggressive in the ways we can pursue uh, uh, the, the issue of money in judicial politics. For Life of the Law, I'm Chloe Persinos. You're listening to part two of Life of the Law's special election year series on a fair fight for a fair court. We just heard reporter Chloe Persino's story on the question of the hidden influence of money in judicial politics. In our next story, we're going to Kansas with reporter Ashley Cleek. It's a rainy Tuesday night in the small town of Hutchinson. A few hundred people pack into an auditorium at Hutchinson Community College to see the Kansas Supreme Court hold court. The Honorable Justices of the Supreme Court, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons having business before this court are admonished to... The audience quietly stands as the justices slowly walk out in their robes and sit on a raised platform draped in black. It looks a little goofy, like a community theater production of a trial. But this court isn't staged. These are real oral arguments before Kansas's highest court. The docket for Tuesday, October 4th, 2016, consists of two cases. Appeal number 111282, State of Kansas versus Gerald E. Cleverly, Jr. Megan's story sits in the second row of the auditorium. She says she's wanted to be a lawyer since she was little, specifically a criminal prosecutor. This is something that I'm really passionate about, I would say. Um... I love law and anything that has to do with it. Story's a criminal justice major. She's got long, curly brown hair and a big smile. She's involved in so many things on campus that she color codes her day planner. So when her professor announced that the Kansas Supreme Court was coming to Hutchinson, she planned her schedule around it. During the oral arguments, Story takes pages and pages of notes. Yeah, I'm like writing it all down because I'm like, oh, I know this stuff from class. The hearing lasts around two hours. It's dark as Story walks back to her dorm room. She says the court session wasn't nearly as intense as she thought it would be. I thought that it would be a little more like, um, I don't know, like a few good men with Tom Cruise where he's like, you can't handle the truth. Instead, she says the hearing was respectful. The judges cracked some dad jokes, but mostly it was technical and academic. But even after she's seen the justices and heard the court deliberate, Story says she's still not sure how she'll vote in the upcoming election, whether she'll vote to keep all five judges on the ballot or kick them off the bench. She's not totally sure how she should even evaluate the justices. I would say I would research, like, their values and what they... But when it comes to the law, they need to set aside their values. So that's kind of a difficult question, what to research... There is very little information about the Supreme Court justices in Kansas, or across the country for that matter. And even someone who loves the law as much as story isn't going to read a bunch of decisions in order to get a snapshot of the thousands of cases the justices have ruled on. The Kansas Supreme Court's been doing these public appearances for a few years now to show the people of Kansas what they do and how they work. But this year, the stakes are much higher. 
This is the first election where there's been a real campaign to oust four of the justices on the Kansas Supreme Court, including Chief Justice Lawton Ness. Ethically, the justices can't campaign, so these public appearances are their only chance to show the people who they are. I talked to Ness at a local Holiday Inn on his way to the oral arguments. We cannot just sit back, otherwise uh, there will be no contest for this. Uh, what we do will not be known to the general public, and people will go into the voting booth knowing only what our opposition has said about us. And if they want to make the proper vote, they need to be informed as to what is going on. And then if they vote to get rid of Lawton Nuss, well, then that's democracy at work. So what is their opposition saying about them? We'll find out after the break. Kansas chooses its Supreme Court by a system known as merit selection. The way it works is, whenever a spot opens up, lawyers all over the state apply to be a Supreme Court justice. Then a nominating commission sifts through all the applications and chooses three candidates. And from those three, the governor picks a new justice for the Kansas Supreme Court. Then, every six years, Kansans vote. Yes or no. Keep the judge on the bench or kick him off. So far, no Supreme Court justice has ever been voted off. This year, five judges are up for a vote. And this year is different. This year, there are groups actively campaigning against four of the justices on the ballot. They say they want to keep one of the judges, the newest one, who was recently appointed by Governor Sam Brownback, and oust the other four. I would have to apologize one time for just the whole place looks. One of the groups is Kansans for Life, a pro-life group in Wichita. The back room of their small office smells like cardboard. There are boxes everywhere, stacks of mailers, door hangers, postcards, signs. Susan Guthrie, the office admin, holds up a glossy yard sign with a big yellow gavel on it. It says, Vote no on activist judges. In the coming weeks, Kansans for Life plan to make thousands of calls and distribute around 200,000 door hangers, urging people to vote no on four of the five justices. David Gittrich is one of the leaders of Kansans for Life. He's been campaigning to end abortion for more than 35 years, and he thinks the current justices on the Kansas Supreme Court are too liberal. Well, every law that we pass in Kansas, which has been significant, ends up in courts. They all go to court. And so if all of our bills are going to end up in court, then we at least should make sure that we have a fair hearing in court. Last year, Kansas was the first state to pass a law that criminalizes a common second trimester abortion procedure. And just like Gittrich said, it was quickly challenged in court. The Kansas Supreme Court has yet to hear the case, but Gittrich believes a majority of the current justices will likely vote against it. In addition to their vote no campaign, Kansans for Life would also like to see Kansas change the way it selects judges. Gittrich prefers elections. If we had open elections, I'm pretty sure every member of the courts would be conservative and think pro-life was a good thing because people of Kansas think pro-life is a good thing. Bills that would change the way the Supreme Court is selected in Kansas have been floated by the legislature. None have passed. Governor Brownback says he isn't taking a position on the upcoming retention election. But in the past, he's supported changing the way the justices are appointed and attacked the court for some of their decisions. 
Two years ago, when Brownback was running for re-election, his campaign sponsored an ad highlighting a horrible murder case that happened in Wichita. Remember the Carr brothers? Five savage murders. Caught. Prosecuted. Death row. Then liberal judges in Topeka changed that. Nearly everyone in Kansas knows about the Carr brothers' case. The two brothers who committed the brutal murders were found guilty and sentenced to death in 2002. Then, in 2014, the Kansas Supreme Court reversed the brothers' death sentences, citing problems with the trial court's procedure. To have the Kansas Supreme Court overturn it six to one, really pretty much, I would say, brought the families to their knees. That's Amy James. James was the girlfriend of one of the men killed by the Carr brothers. She sat through years of trials and appeals. James has bright blue eyes that flood red when she talks about the case. In 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court heard the case, and that court upheld the brothers' death sentences and came down strongly against the Kansas Supreme Court. Now, James is the spokesperson of Kansans for Justice, a group of family members and friends of the Carr brothers' victims that's pushing for Kansans to vote no on retention. If you have a justice that's not doing their job, how do you remove them? This is the only way. James says the Carr brothers' case is proof that some of the justices on the Kansas Supreme Court are against the death penalty and are trying to get rid of it by reversing cases on technicalities. This retention vote, James says, is the only way for Kansans to show the justices they disagree. I think our goal is to send a message to the Kansas Supreme Court to say, you have to make the right decisions I think this dynamic of targeting judges for decisions they've made on the bench and calling for them to be quote-unquote accountable can be really dangerous in terms of what it means for how judges are going to actually be approaching cases and for public confidence that our court system is functioning fairly. Alicia Bannon is the senior counsel for the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center. She's been watching judicial elections across the country for years, and she's seen them become more combative and expensive. Bannon points to increased spending, much of it dark, untraceable money that's flowing into judicial elections. In Kansas, because of a loophole in financial disclosure laws, none of the groups campaigning for or against the justices have to report how much money they're spending or who's funding their campaigns. Kansans say this is the first year they've seen yard signs urging neighbors to vote yes or no. There are mailers and TV ads for and against the court, And Bannon says voters should be concerned. It's essentially created an arms race where you have a lot of money going in and interest groups basically trying to shape who's sitting on the courts and the decisions that courts are making. You know, it doesn't take all that much money to make a big difference in these elections. And so I I think that that many groups have viewed it as a pretty cost-effective way of having a really significant policy impact in a state. While feelings about abortion or the death penalty are at the center of the campaigns to remove the justices, some people in Kansas say this election is actually about something else entirely. And we'll talk about that after the break. Secretary's office is one, two, three, four, fifth door on the right. Shelley Kiblinger is the superintendent of Hutchinson Public Schools. 
Kiblinger thinks the issues being discussed in the run-up to this election, abortion and the death penalty, are red herrings. You know, in some cases, maybe people want to make the, the justices the scapegoat for, for some reason this year for things that they're unhappy with. Kiblinger's been in education a long time, and she knows the issues facing her district and the state. Kiblinger thinks the real motivation to remove four of the justices is an ongoing battle between the legislature, the governor, and the courts over education funding. For years, the Kansas Supreme Court has ordered the legislature to spend more money on public schools. Kiblinger believes the governor and some legislators want to unseat four of the justices up for retention in hopes that new justices, ultimately selected by the governor, would side with them on school funding. Kiblinger's school district is one of the plaintiffs in the funding case, and she feels the state Supreme Court is the last barrier protecting schools like hers from going under. I think if we were to see a substantial shift in the makeup of the court, that it would be highly likely that school funding litigation would really take a turn. I think the face of public education in the state of Kansas would never be the same again. In this cacophony of voices and campaigns, the justices remain silent. Because of the canons of judicial ethics, the justices can't campaign. They can't say, vote for me, or publicly take positions on issues. They can give speeches at Rotary Clubs and talk to people after public hearings, like those oral arguments at Hutchinson Community College. Chief Justice Lawton Ness, who's facing his own retention election this year, says it's a good thing judges can't campaign. The United States Supreme Court said judges need to be indifferent to popularity. They're not politicians. They don't do what the people want, because what the people want can change from week to week, month to month, year to year. The way I look at it is the people have told me what they want in their constitution. Nuss is a measured man. He has a bushy salt and pepper mustache that he refers to as a cowboy mustache. His voice is calm, his answers short. He says he's watched as courts across the country have faced tough political campaigns. He believes these attempts to unseat judges on state Supreme Courts are an effort to influence the courts nationwide, to sway the courts in one direction. And so he's speaking out, as much as he can, in the run-up to this election. Ness couldn't talk about school funding or the Carr brothers' decision. But, he said, in his time on the bench, he's made thousands of decisions. And he understands that many people across the state are angry over one decision or another. We make decisions that we don't necessarily like to make. And there may be one case out there that nobody else was concerned about in Kansas except the person who lost, or that person's friends, or a company that did not like a decision. And they may go into the voting booth and say, Lawton Nuss wrote that decision for the court. He just is wrong, and I'm going to vote him out because of that. Well, that's, that's democracy in Kansas. For Life of the Law, I'm Ashley Cleek. You're listening to part two of Life of the Law's special election year series on a fair fight for a fair court. We just heard Ashley Cleek's story courting voters about the retention election of justices on Kansas' state Supreme Court. All five justices were retained by voters in Kansas by comfortable margins in what could be taken as an affirmation of the values of fairness and impartiality of the justices on the court. 
In the final story in our series on a fair fight for a fair court, reporter Jess Angabritson takes us to North Carolina. Robin Hudson thought her campaign for the North Carolina Supreme Court was going well. She'd been a lawyer for decades and knew the state's courts inside out. And she was the incumbent, one term already under her belt. Still, she kept up a grueling campaign schedule, crisscrossing North Carolina. They're typically 12-hour days, at least, seven days a week. At the beginning of the campaign, my goal was to get home before dark. Then that was clearly not going to happen. So then it was to get home maybe before 10, and that happened sometimes. One April morning in 2014, Hudson was prepping for another marathon day. It was less than two weeks before the primary election. Early voting had just begun. I was sitting in my bed with my laptop, (laughs) drinking a cup of coffee. It was early in the morning. She opened her email to see if anything had come in overnight. I got an email from one of my campaign people with a link to a TV ad, and it just said, have you seen this? That was it. Just the link. And, um, And I clicked on the link immediately. We want judges to protect us. When child molesters sued... It was an attack ad. Supreme Court Justice Robin Hudson sided with the predators. And it was not a great way to start my day. Justice Robin Hudson, not tough on child molesters. The ad distorted a dissent that Hudson had written several years earlier. It featured images of an empty playground and shadowy predators. And it used an unflattering picture of her with a grimace and dark circles under her eyes. Fortunately, I didn't have any time to sit in front of the television, because if I did, the TV ad was on every station, cable, network, nonstop, all the time for 10 days. It was, you know, carpet bombing by TV ad. (laughs) Ads like this one used to be pretty rare. 15 years ago, most state judicial races were low-key. They didn't cost a lot of money. They didn't get a lot of attention. Then, around 2000, business groups like the Chamber of Commerce began to spend more money on judicial races, treating them like other political races. Alicia Bannon is senior counsel at NYU's Brennan Center for Justice. In some ways, it's a lot cheaper to influence the composition of a state Supreme Court rather than, you know, amend a state constitution or even pass a bill through the legislature. The influx of money started with business groups on the right. Then left-leaning groups jumped in on the action, too. And essentially, we saw an arms race of spending. And so you had interests on both sides putting a tremendous amount of money into judicial races, essentially trying to influence who was sitting on the courts and then ultimately the decisions that those courts would be making. The total money spent on judicial elections has risen dramatically over the past few decades. Ahead of the 1990 election, judicial candidates raised around $6 million nationwide. By 2012, that number was over $30 million. And that's not including the money that poured in from outside groups. That's where the 2010 Supreme Court ruling Citizens United comes in. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Renee Montaigne. In a sweeping decision today, the Supreme Court has struck down the century-old ban on corporate spending in federal elections. In Citizens United, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that political spending is a form of protected free speech under the First Amendment. That means corporations and unions can spend unlimited amounts of money on ads and other political activity. But they can't donate directly to a candidate or campaign. 
So they give money to outside groups, politically active nonprofits with names like Americans for Prosperity or Progressive Kick. Emory Law professor Michael Kang has studied judicial attack ads. He says these outside groups tend to fund ugly attacks. Outside groups tend to foot the bill for a lot of the really hard-hitting attack ads because candidates and parties generally don't want to be associated with the nastiest advertising, and that tends to get effectively outsourced to the outside groups. Alicia Bannon at the Brennan Center has watched hundreds of these ads. She says they've become their own genre. You'll have, you know, dark music and a a scary-sounding voiceover. Insider Daryl McGraw used your tax dollars as a piggy bank for... Oftentimes they focus on some decision that a judge made, oftentimes misleading. The homicide charges were dropped and the man went free. Or talk about how a judge sided with criminals. Tell Judge Kloppenberg courts should protect children, not criminals. These ads aired earlier this year in Wisconsin and West Virginia, two states that held judicial elections in the spring. In those races alone, nearly $7 million were spent on television ads. Courtney Goodson was one of the candidates in the Arkansas race for chief justice last spring. The Democrat Gazette calls Justice Courtney Goodson the ultimate insider. When Goodson got hit with attack ads, her strategy was to hit back. Seen these ads backing John Dan Kemp? Shady and false. Paid for with dark money. Powerful interests are trying to buy our Supreme Court. Goodson was responding to a series of attack ads run by the conservative group Judicial Crisis Network. It doesn't disclose its donors, and it declined my request for an interview. But the watchdog group Open Secrets used IRS filings to track some of its donors. The biggest one is another dark money group, the Wellspring Committee, which gives millions to conservative nonprofits. I'm Courtney Goodson. Let's tell the dark money to get out of this race and out of our state. According to the Brennan Center, Courtney Goodson spent about $300,000 on TV ads like this one. The Judicial Crisis Network spent about twice that. Goodson lost the race. But she was actually running for a promotion to become Chief Justice, which means she still gets to keep her current seat on the court. She has two years left in her term. She'll be spending them on the bench with her opponent, Dan Kemp. I don't expect any problems. Uh, We've met uh, several times since the election. She's been nothing but cordial to me. Yeah, I think we both pledged to uh, have a good working relationship with each other. And I think that's what's going to happen, you know, to the surprise of many, probably. Kemp says he'd never heard of Judicial Crisis Network before the attack ads came out. He responded on Facebook to one of them, writing he was deeply concerned, but he didn't go into much detail. Goodson tried to turn the ads against him. It got pretty messy. One obvious way that attack ads influence state courts is by helping defeat one candidate and elect another. But ads can also influence judges in more subtle ways. Take Robin Hudson, the justice from North Carolina whom we heard from at the beginning of our story. In 2014, she won her May primary, but she was anxious she might be attacked again in the general election that November. We had no idea from between then and November whether they were gonna do it again you know, run another ad, double down and run more ads. 
that were worse because I knew they had spent run six weeks of ads in 2012. We just had no idea, so it was a li- the whole year was pretty nerve-wracking. That nerve-wracking fear of attack ads can affect the way judges do their jobs. Imagine, you're a justice on a state Supreme Court and you're preparing to run for re-election in a year or two. You've seen harsh ads targeting some of your colleagues. You know there are well-funded interest groups pouring money into judicial elections. You'd like them to spend their money supporting you rather than attacking you. The question is, could this affect how judges rule on hot-button issues? Elected judges know that any decision they make could end up fueling an attack ad next time they're vying for their job. But could that affect how they rule? Emory Law professor Michael Kang says according to his research, the answer is yes. We looked at cases from 2008 to 2013, and what we found was that as the number of attack ads in state Supreme Court races went up in a state, the justices in that state become more likely to decide against a criminal defendant. They become more conservative uh, in criminal cases that come before them. Kang and his colleague, Emory Law professor Joanna Shepard, also found that after the Citizens United decision, state Supreme Court justices were less likely to rule in favor of criminal defendants. That suggests the rise in corporate spending has actually changed the way judges rule, at least in some criminal cases. It's not clear that we want a system where a criminal defendant gets treated differently depending on uh, how likely the justice is to get reelected or how much money the justice needs to have to win reelection. Not everyone shares Kang's skepticism. Chris Bono is a political scientist at the University of Pittsburgh. He sees cases where judges change their minds in a more positive light. So we can interpret that one way, right? And we could say, oh, this is awful. It shows that judges are, are, are changing their views, and this means that they're being influenced by the public, and this is a bad thing for judicial independence. Well, it's also a good thing for judicial accountability. If we think that the voters in a state have some say in what the laws and what the Constitution should mean, right? the fact that judges are, are changing their views to be more consistent with the voters means that these judges are being held accountable. Michael Kang doesn't buy this argument. He says that if justices were being held accountable to voters, then liberal justices would start making more conservative decisions, and conservative justices would start making more liberal decisions. Kang says that's not what happens. The thing is that every justice basically corrects in a conservative direction and none correct in a liberal direction. You don't see conservative justices realizing, oh, I am to the right of the median voter, and so I need to let some criminal defendants off because the constituents in my jurisdiction are more liberal than I am, and so I correct toward the left. That, that doesn't happen. Um, they're all correcting in the same direction. Kang says that suggests the judges aren't changing their decisions to woo voters. They're changing their decisions to avoid soft-on-crime attack ads. There are alternatives to electing judges. In some states, judges are appointed by the governor or legislature. They don't have to spend huge amounts of time campaigning and fundraising, and they don't have to worry about attack ads. But Alicia Bannon says that doesn't necessarily mean the judges in those states aren't political. It's actually also an issue even in states that use appointments, that judges tend to make decisions that are consistent with the preferences of whoever is going to you know, make a decision of whether or not they can stay on the bench. And so the question really becomes, 
do you want your politics explicit or implicit? For me, I prefer explicit, right? I prefer to have things out. I mean, I use an analogy sometimes. We'd rather be stabbed in the back or punched in the face. For Chris Bono, getting punched in the face is having the politics of judicial elections out in the open, on TV for everyone to see. Getting stabbed in the back? That's having the governor or state legislature shape the court behind the scenes. Right. Well, I'd rather be punched in the face. I think transparency is a good thing. We should have tough disclosure laws, both for independent groups and for candidates. I far prefer that than to have these groups giving money to the governor, the governor's campaign, behind closed doors, and then having the governor be able to appoint somebody. Two years ago, despite the attack ads, North Carolina voters re-elected Robin Hudson to the North Carolina Supreme Court. Hudson thinks, in the end, the attacks actually helped her. Really, it, it actually made our fundraising much easier. I didn't even have to say anything. You know, this is, this is Robin Hudson or Justice Hudson calling, and the response would be, oh, I hate what they did. You know, where can I send a check? <laughs> She's now two years into her eight-year term. Because of the court's mandatory retirement age, she likely won't run again. But she's frustrated that attack ads like the one she faced continue to influence judicial races around the country. So Hudson is working with a group that tries to educate voters about the role of money and interest groups in the court system. If you look at our constitution and the state constitutions and the oath that we take to be fair and impartial and to not show favoritism to anyone, you wouldn't think that spending a lot of money to influence somebody in order to further a particular agenda is consistent with the oath that we take and the job we're supposed to do of administering justice impartially and fairly. Hudson's hope is that when voters this fall do see an attack ad, they'll know to watch skeptically. For Life of the Law, I'm Jess Ingebretson. Two of Life of the Law series on a fair fight for a fair court was reported by Chloe Persinos, Ashley Cleek, and Jess Engerbertson, and was edited by Ibi Caputo and myself. We had sound design and production by Shawnee Avaram and Tony Gannon. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits Heidel and Rachel Kane. Howard Gelman and Katie McMurrin were our engineers. If you like stories about the law but have gotten tripped up by the legal system, Tune in to Life of the Law on iTunes. We tell stories about the law like it is. Write a review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. This two-hour, two-part series on a fair fight for a fair court is now available for public radio stations to download and share on their airwaves at PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Our series is funded in part by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, the Proteus Fund, and by you. Your tax-deductible gift to Life of the Law makes this series and all of our reporting possible. If you like the work we're doing, visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a gift of a dollar, ten dollars, twenty, fifty, or a hundred. Make a recurring gift that will sustain Life of the Law and make it possible to report stories about the law in our lives for months to come. We are in this together. How important it is that we keep our courts, the defenders and the definers of justice, free from politics and moneyed interests. Next on Life of the Law. I've never seen Tanya snap. Never in my life. Never. That girl, I bet you I could go up and smack her and she wouldn't snap. 
She wasn't that type of a person. That's next on Life of the Law. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and take a minute to make a gift to Life of the Law to cover the costs of producing this series and all the stories to come. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.